Hi, this is Shivaraman again. Now, when we last left off, we were talking a little bit about our protocols at Hopkins for evaluating patients with GI bleeding. Now, why don't we move away from protocols and away from the rationale of these studies and really talk about what you're interested in? And that's how exactly do you go about interpreting these studies in real life? Now, these are really complex studies. There's a lot of things to look at, a lot of different diagnoses to think about, and I think it's really easy to miss things. One of the things I always try to stress to our residents and fellows is that you have to have an algorithmic, consistent, reproducible approach to evaluating GI bleeding studies. You can't just stop the second you see the right diagnosis because you want to figure out if there's other stuff on the scan. There are lots of different things that might potentially explain a patient's GI bleeding, and you really don't want to miss any of them. So when I'm looking at these studies, I have four steps or four goals. I start by looking for sites of active extravasation or bleeding. Goal number two, I try to look at the vasculature, usually using MIP coronal reconstructions, trying to identify vascular abnormalities that may explain the patient's bleeding, including AVMs or angiodysplasia. Goal number three, I'm going to look for other potential inflammatory or infectious causes of bleeding that might not be associated with active extravasation. And then finally, goal number four, I'm going to look for that rare, small, or large bowel tumor that might be causing the patient's bleeding. And let's go through each of these different goals in some detail. Now, goal number one, identifying sites of active extravasation. And this is really the holy grail, right? This is why we're doing the studies first and foremost, trying to find that site of active extravasation so that we can guide the interventionalist to go embolize it or treat it. Now, there's a couple of different things you're going to be looking for. First and foremost, you want to find sites of active bleeding, active contrast extravasation that typically has at least a Hounsfield attenuation of roughly 90. Now, the slower the bleed, the more cloudy and amorphous the extravasation is going to be, and the faster the bleed is, the more likely you are to see linear jet-like extravasation. So the morphology really will change depending on the briskness of the bleed. It's somewhat counterintuitive, but in my own practice, I've found that identifying the slower bleeder sometimes is easier. You see this kind of vague, amorphous site of extravasation, and those faster bleeders can be very linear and very easy to overlook. Now, it is critical when you're looking for active extravasation that you don't overcall. You do not want to mistake high-density material in the bowel, whether it's medication, food, a suture line, for being an active extravasation. And as I mentioned in our last talk, that's one of the reasons why we do dual-phase imaging. Having those two phases is critical. A true extravasation is going to get bigger, it's going to change in size, and it's going to change in configuration. Now, I will admit it makes it a lot easier if you acquire non-contrast images. In that case, you're going to be constantly cross-referencing between the non-contrast and post-contrast images to see whether it's truly a bleeder or whether it was there on the non-contrast images. But to be honest, the non-contrast images do add some radiation dose penalty. And I, I think that as long as you acquire both arterial and venous phase images in conjunction, you probably don't need the non-contrast images, although it may make your job slightly easier. So here's a good example. You can see that there's clearly a bleed in the left colon. Notice how it's relatively subtle on the arterial phase images. It's somewhat linear, jet-like, so it's probably a pretty fast bleeder. But notice how it's increasing in size and changing in morphology between the arterial and the venous phase scan. So you know that this isn't just some intrinsic high-density material. It's not old barium. This is actually a bleeder in the left colon. Now, interestingly, this is the tagged RBC scan in the same patient. And we actually did the tagged RBC scan first, and it's completely negative. I don't see a bleeder. Now, in theory, if you look at animal models, they say that the tagged RBC scan is actually slightly more sensitive, maybe down to about 0.1 cc's per minute, as opposed to about 0.3 for a CT scan. But in my experience, I've seen maybe four or five cases just like this over the course of the last three or four months. 
studies which have been negative or cases which have been negative on the tagged RBC but have been positive on the CT scan. So I don't think it's completely unequivocal that a tagged RBC scan is more sensitive than a CT scan. Now here's another example, this time in the small bowel. Now this is pretty small and pretty subtle. If you look at the axial images, you see, when I point out to you, that there is a small bleeder in the small bowel, anterior part of the pelvis, and notice how it's getting bigger and slightly changing in shape between the arterial and the venous face scans. But I wouldn't blame any of you if you missed that, if you were scrolling pretty rapidly through those axial images. But that's why having those reconstructions is critical. Look at the MIPS. The MIPS make it obvious, right? There's clearly a bleeder. There's an abnormal vessel going straight to the site of active extravasation. I promise you, if you're just relying on the axial source images and you're not using those reconstructions to your benefit, you're going to miss some of these bleeds. Now, here's another example. Now, this is another type of bleed that I've seen commonly missed here. You don't see active bleeding, or you don't see an active jet of contrast. You don't see a rounded pooling of contrast, but rather, you see a contrast level. You see a level in that left colon that's actually getting bigger between the arterial and the venous face scans. And for whatever reason, even though it's obvious when I pointed out to you on this single image, I've seen a bunch of these missed because it's just not what our minds are expecting when we're looking for a bleeder. So always be thinking about any abnormal contrast level in the bowel as a sign of active extravasation. And finally, here's another example in the small bowel. And notice in this case, you see active extravasation in the right lower quadrant, and not only is it changing in size and changing into configuration, it's actually moving between the arterial and the venous phase scans. That's not at all uncommon, and that's something that you should in fact expect, especially with a faster bleed. Now, identifying the site of active bleeding doesn't just totally rely on finding active extravasation. Yes, that's the best possible finding, it's the most consistent, it's the best possible thing for you to be able to guide your interventionalist for treatment, but you're not always going to see it. But sometimes, even though you don't see active extravasation, you can use the sentinel clot sign to help guide the interventionalist towards the right site or towards the proper site of bleeding. You're going to be looking for clotted blood at the site of bleeding that has a Hounsfield attenuation of somewhere between 45 to 70 Hounsfield units. So this is very much akin to the sentinel clot sign in trauma. Remember, if you see clotted blood or high-density blood in the abdomen or pelvis after a trauma, it's going to tend to be closest to the site of active bleeding. So if I see blood around the liver and blood around the spleen, but it's higher in density around the spleen, then you can be reasonably certain that the spleen is the likely source of bleeding. And the very much the same concept holds true for the bowel. If I see blood products throughout the bowel, but I see the highest density blood in one point in the small bowel, then I can be reasonably certain that that's probably where the bleeding is coming from. So typically, the farther away from the site of bleeding you get, the more likely the fluid is to be lower in density. So here's an example of that. Now, in this case, anyone can see that there's active extravasation in the duodenum, but it's still a pretty good example of the sentinel clot sign. Notice that immediately around this active extravasation, there is high-density fluid, and that's somewhere in the order of 60, 65 Hounsfield units. So that's a classic sentinel clot sign. Now, here's an example where all I have is a venous phase image. I don't see active extravasation, but I can be pretty certain that this is, in fact, a gastric bleed. There is high-density clotted blood layering within the stomach. That's about 70 Hounsfield units. That's a classic sentinel clot sign, and this bleed was actually confirmed on endoscopy. Sometimes I can use the sentinel clot sign to my advantage, even when I don't even have contrast on board. This is a patient who has CMV enteritis, immunocompromised. The bowel looks absolutely horrible. Now, they were having pretty profuse lower GI bleeding, and we were asked, well, where do you think the bleeding's coming from? 
And in this case, I can tell the clinician with a high degree of confidence that this isn't just coming from one spot, but probably coming from multiple different sites in the small bowel. Notice how there's high-density clotted blood probably at five or six different sites within the small bowel. This is a patient with multifocal active bleeding as a result of really, really bad CMV enteritis. Now, how do I approach this in real life? When I'm looking at these cases, I have a consistent approach to looking at the bowel. First of all, the colon accounts for the vast majority of all lower GI bleeds, somewhere in the order of 90% of cases. So that's really where your concentration has to focus. I run the large bowel from the rectum all the way to the cecum on both the arterial and the venous phase scans. And if there's any hint of high-density material, I'm going to be cross-referencing between the arterial and the venous phase images, trying to distinguish an active bleed from high-density intrinsic material. Now, after I look at the large bowel, I am going to look at the small bowel in detail as well. Remember, even though small bowel bleeds are not that common, they still account for somewhere in the order of about 10% of all bleeding sites, and frankly, they probably account for a larger percentage of missed bleeds on a CT scan. It can be really difficult to look at the entirety of the small bowel in a systematic fashion. What I tend to do in my own practice is to divide the abdomen into four quadrants, look at each quadrant on the arterial and the venous phase scans, and again, cross-referencing between the two phases to make sure that I'm not overcalling some suture or barium as a site of active extravasation. Now, once I've evaluated for sites of active bleeding, the next step is to look at the vasculature. This is something that gets missed all the time because we don't look for it, right? Vascular malformations, angiodysplasia, varices account for a sizable number of GI bleeds, and you may not see active extravasation, but this is something you should be able to make the correct diagnosis on, and where really you can make a big difference in terms of the patient's ultimate outcomes. Now, the most important thing to look for is going to be angiodysplasia. Angiodysplasia, which is an abnormal proliferation of vessels within the submucosal layer of the bowel, is degenerative in nature. It's related to aging, and it accounts for a sizable number of all lower GI bleeds, somewhere in the order of 6% in all patients, and probably a greater percentage in older patients, the most common patients to have angiodysplasia. The vast majority of these cases occur in the right colon, and unfortunately, there is no great modality for identifying these lesions. Colonoscopy is quite poor. Angio is pretty good, but as I mentioned, angio is not a great modality to start with when you're trying to diagnose a GI bleed. So at the end of the day, CT really is probably the best chance you have for making this diagnosis. Now, angiodysplasia has a pretty consistent imaging appearance. An abnormal tangle of vessels, usually within the submucosal layer of the bowel, the wall of the colon, you're going to see a dilated feeding artery, an early draining vein, and then this weird tangle of vessels associated with the bowel wall. The arterial phase is critical. You're going to see that early draining vein, and you're going to see that weird tangle of vessels, and oftentimes the venous phase images can be relatively normal in appearance. Here's one of the better examples I've seen over the course of the last few months. Unusual tangle of vessels in the bowel wall, early draining vein, hypertrophied feeding artery coming off the SMA. Here's another example. This is in a patient with aortic stenosis, quite old. This patient has a history of uh, lower GI bleeding over the course of many months. And you can see that there's this unusual tangle of vessels within the wall of the right colon. I don't see an early draining vein. I don't see a hypertrophied feeding artery. But this turned out to be angiodysplasia confirmed on angiography. Now, another diagnosis that gets missed all the time are bowel AVMs. About 5% of all patients who have lower GI bleeding never have a source identified. And it's thought that about 40% of those patients have an undiagnosed AVM. Now, AVMs, unlike angiodysplasia, involve the entirety of the bowel wall, the mucosa, the submucosa, and the muscular layer of the wall. 
and they can occur virtually anywhere. Now, in theory, if you look at autopsy studies, they're most common in the small bowel, typically in the jejunum. But honestly, in my own practice, the vast majority of cases that I've seen have been in the rectum. And I don't know if that's just biased because that's where I tend to look the hardest or whether maybe they're more common there than people think. But regardless, I've seen a lot of these in the colon and they look, or a lot of these in the rectum, and they look pretty much like AVMs anywhere else in the body. An abnormal tangle of veins and arteries, a distinct vascular nidus, and an early draining vein. Now you may ask me, how do I distinguish an AVM from angiodysplasia? And the honest truth is, it's not always going to be possible on a CT scan. Yeah, AVMs often will be slightly more conspicuous, and if you see a big-time tangle of vessels, a discrete vascular nidus, you're probably dealing with an AVM rather than angiodysplasia. But the truth is, in many cases, you're not going to be able to make the distinction, and it may not matter. You're going to refer that patient on for the next best test, which is going to be angiography. So here's a good example of a patient who had been having chronic lower GI bleeding, you can see in the axial images, it looks pretty normal. But if you look at the MIP reconstructions or the VR reconstructions, you can see that there's a weird tangle of vessels in the rectum, large feeding artery, classic AVM. Here's another example. Again, chronic lower GI bleeding, unusual tangle of vessels within the rectal wall, early draining vein, arteries coming in from the internal iliac system, turned out to be an AVM on angiography. And finally, here's one of the better examples I've seen for a long time. Large feeding artery coming off the internal iliac on the right, you can see early draining veins going into the IMV, unusual tangle of vessels within the wall of the rectum, classic AVM. And I didn't see active extravasation, but it doesn't matter. I can tell the clinician that this is almost certainly why the patient is bleeding. Now, the final vascular malformation you want to be thinking about is one that's actually quite common but underdiagnosed, and that's portosystemic collaterals, or varices. Now, we've all seen varices in patients with cirrhosis and portal hypertension, and we tend to think of them as being parasophageal, intraesophageal, gastric, splenic. But the truth is they're actually quite common in the colon, particularly in the rectum, maybe in somewhere between 50 to 75% of all patients. Now, the truth is the vast majority of rectal varices are asymptomatic and do not often cause bleeding. But they can bleed, and because they're so common, they do account for a not insubstantial amount of bleeds in the ER setting. Now, I will warn you, you're not going to see active extravasation. These are venous bleeds. So you're not going to see active sites of extravasation of contrast. But if I see serpiginous vessels surrounding or in the rectal wall, no early draining vein, no vascular nidus, non-enhancing on the arterial phase, but avidly enhancing on the venous phase, in a patient who has cirrhosis and signs of portal hypertension, that's rectal varices. And it's a pretty good explanation for why the patient might be bleeding. Here's a great example. This is a patient with primary biliary cirrhosis. You see this weird tangle of vessels in the rectum. You see it's all connecting up to the internal mesenteric vein, classic rectal varices. Here's another example. This patient has horrible cirrhosis. You can see that the spleen is huge with an early splenic infarct. And you see classic varices both within the rectal wall and surrounding the rectum. And this patient was having chronic but pretty brisk lower GI bleeding. Now, why don't we stop there? And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the other diagnoses you might want to look for that might cause a patient's lower GI bleeding. Well, that's it for today. I'll see you guys soon. Bye.